Hello, everyone. Welcome to Measuring the Score podcast, the podcast where we offer our opinions on film scores and the films they're inspired by. I'm Chris. And I'm Leslie. Let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Measuring the Score. Today we're going to be talking about Ocean's Eleven. Now, this is the remake starring George Clooney, Brad Pitt, and tons of other Hollywood stars. But before we begin, Leslie, have you been listening to anything other than the score we're going to be talking about today? Yes, I have been listening to the score to 310 to Yuma. 310 to Yuma, that's uh, Mark remake. Ab- yeah, that's uh, Marco Beltrami. Right. That was a good score. He was nominated for that score. I love it. Really? Yeah, I do. It's it, it very reminiscent of uh, some of the old westerns, in my opinion, and it's very reminiscent of uh, in places the good, bad, and the ugly. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the flip side, you know, Marco made it his own, so you could tell it's Marco. It's got its its own feel and sound, and right. it's just amazing. I love it. Was that the first time you ever heard it? Uh, um, this is about the second or third time I've listened to it. I remember something about that score. There, there was one piece, the one near the the end of the film. It was originally supposed to be for another scene, and uh, James Mangold, or Mangold, however you pronounce it, the director, uh, said, I think he rearranged it and decided to put that piece there, and you know, told talk to Marco about it. I remember seeing a video, behind the scenes video. That was pretty cool. And that would become like the big highlight of the movie was that one piece right there. Oh, well, it's like, you know, the good, bad, the ugly. The highlight of that one is the ecstasy of gold. Everything builds to that piece. So, right. you know, it's it's still very reminiscent of, you know, it's almost like an homage to the old Western. Yeah, I liked it. It was a good score. I really liked that one. I've been listening to two different scores. One of them... Oh, Mr. Fancy Pants. Yeah, Mr. Fancy Pants. You gotta listen to two instead of well, one. <laughs> I was listening to Dune by Hans Zimmer because he just won an Academy Award for that score. Did he? He did. He won I did it. not follow them I, yesterday. Um, Not yesterday. That was the Grammys yesterday. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> it's been a long day. It has been a long day. Uh, No, no. Um, Hans Zimmer, and of course, it, it was one of the things that was very frustrating about the Oscars, among other things, but which we're, we're not going to talk about that on this podcast. But uh, the uh, Academy Award for Best Original Score was not televised. It was one of the things that was cut off this year. Yeah, I, I, you know, when I saw that announcement, I was kind of upset because, uh, in my opinion, um, the music, the directors, all the hard work that goes on behind the scenes, it's one of the reasons why the movies are so successful. If you didn't have that element, the actors and actresses would not shine at all, like right. the stars that they are. So, um, yes, I, I, I was kind of upset that they didn't televise that um, because they deserve their own uh, share of the spotlight. Oh, and, and I agree. But Hans Zimmer, he accepted his word in very, very graceful in a bathrobe. <laughs> at well, his house. when you're Hans Zimmer <laughs> and you've got millions of dollars, you can be eccentric like that. Yeah, exactly. And wear a bathrobe everywhere. I thought it was great. Uh, Steve, <laughs> Steve Jablonski, he, he was the one that posted it. it was uh, Hans Zimmer had like a little plastic Academy Award. He was holding it up, smiling in a bathrobe. I, I loved it. 
So I was going back and listening to that score, trying to, you know, understand. Because the first time I listened to it, I didn't really like it too much. I, I think it's one of those scores that really works better for the film. I haven't seen the new Dune I haven't yet. either. I, according, granted, I have seen the old Dune. Um, I, I, haven't, like... I haven't seen that one either. What? I've never seen the original thing. So Dune. I have seen something you haven't yes. seen? Oh, this is a rare day indeed, everyone. <laughs> rare. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know about the movie because uh, there is like a lot of controversy about it. I know it stars uh, Kyle MacLachlan, um, but I have never seen it. You need to see it. I know, but it's really long. Yeah, that's another. That's one reason why I haven't seen it. Yeah, I, I heard just it's really it being long. long. Uh, another score I've been listening to is The Contractor, starring Chris Pines. It's uh, from a newish composer. Was that, that movie we were supposed to watch the other day? Mm, I don't know. Or we've talked about watching. We we, we talked to watch. about yeah. We talked about watching it. Uh, it's by a newish composer. He, he's worked a lot with Henry Jackman. His name is Alex Belcher, and I, I'm listening to the score, and it's it's very well done and everything else, but it's very generic. There's there's no themes. It's just it's just kind of there, and I'm it's it's one of those scores. I'm I'm, I'm like trying to pay my respects to the composer and listen to the thing all the way through but it, it's just kind of droning on and when i get to that point because i've said this many times before on the podcast i i listen to a lot of music on the way to work because i have a long commute and if it starts getting to the point where i'm getting kind of bored i'm going to find something else to listen to oh you sound like dad two yeah. seconds and then he's going well, to the channel <laughs> no i i gave it i gave it like uh, like I give it like ten, ten seconds. <laughs> no, I gave it like ten tracks in. I'm going okay. This is this oh, is that's not, hardcore. <laughs> that's this is not engrossing me. It's not working. But you know, I, I'm gonna try to finish it. But yeah, I don't I, know. Well, you know, I have a bad habit of flipping through radio stations like their TV channels. Yes, you do. You <laughs> really do. It is so frustrating. On the radio, I don't. <laughs> I'm like just put it on something and leave it there. But no, Leslie's going over there flipping 500 channels. I'm like, what are you doing? Stop. <laughs> I wanted to hear that song. No, I don't like it. Click, 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 <laughs> click, 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 click. You, you ever seen those movies where it's like the radio station and you hear <laughs> where they're like flipping like, that's you. What? <laughs> they shouldn't have put that button on my steering wheel <laughs> then. That button has made me dangerous. Very, very you dangerous. You know, and I, the sad thing is, is that I have done it for so long because, you know, I've had my car for almost 20 years. I have done it for so long now that when I drive another car that doesn't have that button on the steering wheel, I I find myself pressing at the button that's not there. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've done that. I'm like, Be- oh, because wait. In in my personal car, the that button doesn't work. It's like something's wrong with my steering wheel. But yet in my work truck, that button works. So I'm sitting there in the work truck, steadily pressing it. So when I get in the car, I'm pressing it. But like, oh wait, no, this is my car. It doesn't work. Yep. <laughs> All right, so today we're going to be talking about Ocean's Eleven with music by David Holmes. Now, when this score come, when this film come out, sorry, it came out in two thousand one. It was directed by Steven Soderbergh. I remember when it was announced that George Clooney, Matt Damon, all these big stars are going to be in this one heist movie. I I I was kind of curious as to what kind of score it was going to be. And uh, when the film finally come out and I listened to it. It to me was one of the highlights listening to you know watching the film. The music it was not like traditional score. It was drum and bass mixed with old school jazz and saxophone and orchestra. 
I mean, it sounded like a big homage to the original Ocean's Eleven with Frank Frank Sinatra. You know, the original Rat Pack. Fink, Mr. Fink. <laughs> Fink. Mr. Fink. It's been a long day. Fink Sinatra. <laughs> Fink Sinatra. <laughs> Fink. Finks. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, no, it, it did. It had that old school film score sound to it, but it had the modernized drum and bass drum loops and everything else. And I remember it being one of the things I really enjoyed about Ocean's Eleven. Uh, now, David Holmes, he uh, now according to inquirersjournal.com, originally a popular DJ in Belfast, Holmes began working with Soderbergh in 1998 with the film Out of Sight, which also stars George Clooney and Don Cheadle that are in this film here. Amazing. Yeah, I thought it was pretty cool. It's, it's like they all like to work together. Yeah, and, and Holmes is, has worked with Soderbergh a lot. Uh, the last thing he worked on, I have it right here, it was No Sudden Move, which also starred Don Cheadle. I think mm-hmm. Don Cheadle was like the uh, the main actor in that, uh, which, you know. He's a good actor. He, he really is, and he is hilarious in this movie. I like him as Captain Planet. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, wow. I forgot about him as Captain Planet, man. Yeah, it's hilarious. Yeah. If you, if, if you have not watched that, seriously, go look up College Humor, Captain Pla- Don Cheadle, Captain Planet. It, it was just the, one of the funniest things in the world because it, one of the things, besides Don Cheadle himself as Captain Planet, uh, it was, you know, when the, the Planeteers are all doing their things, it was like, Earth! Wind, fire, and then you got the one guy, heart. Well, you know, even as a kid, you try to figure out what was the purpose of heart. Yeah. It didn't make sense because there were elements. But anyway, we regress. Yeah. So, you know, when I first listened to the score, it was immediately to me reminiscent of the jazz that was prevalent in the 1960s. Kind of uh, really jazzy. Um, you could hear elements of the rhythm section. With a snare, you can hear the snare very well. Uh, organs, you can hear the horn line, uh, and you can hear the saxophone, mm-hmm. or I could rather. Granted, that um, you know y'all might hear something else if you know you listen to the score. Um, what I really did like about it was the use of the organ. It kind of reminded me of the Doors. You know, the Doors yeah. use the organ, that jazzy organ sound. Um, so, you know, that's what it put me in mind of. And it also put me in mind of what you would think that casino music would sound like. Now, all right. So, one thing I want to talk about that was a little frustrating trying to listen to this. There's no, not that I could find anyway. I didn't do like a hardcore search. Uh, we listened to this on Spotify. And the only one that was available had dialogue from the film mixed into the score. I mean, now some of it kind of worked, but it was distracting, especially for this purpose here. Like we're trying to judge it on its own. And it was, I don't know, like I said, it was it was really distracting. And it was like, okay, I remember this part. It's, you know, it kind of works with the score and everything else listening to it. But it's like, I don't want to hear him talk. I don't, I don't want to hear the dialogue. I'm going to hear that. I, that's not what I want to hear. I want to hear the score. I want to hear everything. I mean, as some of them work... um, I think on the flip side, though, the dialogue kind of set the mood for yeah. the score piece, what the score piece might be about. Yeah. It was kind of like the theme. So instead of him, 
uh, conveying the theme or motif, however you want to say it, and conveying that in the music sound, he conveyed it in with the dialogue. Yeah, I, I which was a really odd mix to me. I was yeah. with you. I, I was kind of, uh, it kind of stuck out like a sore thumb. I I was not happy with it because I wanted to hear just the music. Yeah, and I, like I said, I didn't do a hard like a hardcore search anywhere and try to find where if the just the score itself was available. Now I know the Ocean's Twelve and Ocean's Thirteen scores were also composed by David Holmes. Uh those are available without the dialogue in there, but they still have not released a score with just Ocean's Eleven that I know of with with no dialogue. But I mean there there's still a lot of uh songs in there I can really get into, like the hundred and sixty million dollar Chinese man. Uh, I I love that score. That's that's for the the part at the end. Yeah, I think that's my favorite piece out of the score. There are two pieces that are different from the rest of the score, and that is the piece entitled Tess and the one entitled Pickpockets. It yes. kind of sounds different. It doesn't have that jazzy feel that the other pieces have. Um, Tess's score piece, if you listen to it, to me, it was very reminiscent of elevator music. <laughs> yeah. Very it, soft it, elevator music. Yeah. I think that was because, well, the pickpocket scene took place in Chicago. It didn't take place around the casino. So I, I think it, it had to lose the casino feel. And with Tess, I think that was to convey she's not part of the heist. She doesn't, you know, she, she has nothing to do with it. Uh, maybe that's why the music sounded different. But it's really distinct. And so when you listen to the score and you get to that piece, you I mean, you, you initially, you, when I say initially, you immediately uh, <laughs> hear that there is a difference. Yeah. And there, and there is. There, there is a big difference. Now, there was one track. I'm trying to find it. Here it is. It's uh, Blues in the Night, and that's by Quincy Jones. I th- and it's the sequence where Saul, when you first meet Saul at the the racetrack, and I think it's played a couple more times throughout the film. I thought for sure that was part of the score because it sounded like everything else. It sounded just like, you know, everything else that David Holmes had done. I I don't know if Quincy Jones made it for this film to kind of help David Holmes out or what, but I thought for sure it was part of the score. And then when it started playing, him and it said, you know, Blues of the Night, Quincy Jones. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> I was like, that's Saul's theme. What are you talking about? No. And which, for for the the sequels, especially for Ocean's Thirteen, David Holmes incorporated that style for Saul, which you know, Carl Reiner was hilarious. But we'll we'll get to that one. Um, the the score though, overall, listening to it on its own, I, I mean, I was still a lot of moments I was kind of tapping my toes to it, and I was like, yeah, look, I kind of like this. So, which you'll get my opinion uh, when we talked about the movie section. But the score by itself was enjoyable. I liked it. Uh, you know, I, I do like listening to jazz from time to time. Um, you did, know, did you ever tap your fingers on the steering wheel while you're driving? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I might have tried to tap my fingers to keep it off of the uh, the radio button. <laughs> Like a nervous twitch, I don't know. <laughs> but no. Um, no, I can't listen to Fink Sinatra. <laughs> Good old Fink. Anyway, so <laughs> um, I like the score in its entirety. I, I like the jazz feel. You know, to me, this would be kind of like a smooth listening if you're trying to de-stress at the end of the day type of thing. 
Um, it, it's very light. Yeah. And it is enjoyable, especially if you like jazz, you know, with a lot of snare and, and the organ and the saxophone and, you know, those old elements. Uh, the, w- w- you were talking about the, the music really sounds like casino music. Uh, the, one of the things it made me think of, because whenever, well, I don't know if they still do it now, but 90%, 90% of the time when they talk about or they show Las Vegas or anything, they play the song by Elvis Presley, the remix. It was, um, I'm going to have to look this up. And Evil Las Vegas? No. Well, that one or it's, um, uh, this is terrible. There was a trivia uh, thing about that. A little less conversation. That one was used because everybody associated Viva Las Vegas with Las Vegas. Right. So they decided to use that piece, if I recall what I read, because of that. They didn't want to use Viva Las Vegas I remember it was well known. Yeah, I remember seeing a lot of commercials for uh, Las Vegas, and they had a little less conversation playing. I don't know if it was before this or after this, but whenever I was associated with Las Vegas commercial, I would think of a little less conversation, not Viva Las Vegas. And that style for, you know, for that remix, the drum and bass and, you know, the technical techno drum loops and stuff like that. I think David Holmes kind of incorporated that into the score and listening to it, it worked. It really, really worked listening to it. I mean, it, it, seriously, guys, if you have not listened to the score, uh, check it out. If you can kind of get past the dialogue, listen to it. It's really fun to listen to. I mean, I, I know Leslie didn't tap her fingers on the steering wheel, but I did. Listening. Well, because if I was going to tap my fingers, it'd be tapping them to change the radio station. <laughs> and I was not supposed to do that when I was listening to the score. <laughs> See? Yeah. yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I remember my watching the film. My brother, he, he's not, you know, he, he'll he'll pick up on some film scores and stuff like that. Um, But I remember... Jason listening, watching the film and listening to the score going, I really like this score. I really like this, man. That's because your brother likes a lot of music and he right. likes a lot of versatile music. Yes. Because uh, I, uh, I remember back in the days when uh, uh, Napster first came out. Yes, I did download music illegally. <gasps> I did. I knew I did. somebody who downloaded music illegally and then got fined because she got caught. Oh, no, we didn't get caught. This was and before. she had to go to court. Oh, no, we did not get caught. <laughs> it was a lot of money Thankfully. she had to pay. Uh, but no, we would create some playlists. Now, we didn't download like a bunch of music. I, I think I made like maybe one CD for me, one CD for Jason, and then we never didn't ever do it again. Uh, because right when we started doing that's when it started becoming a big thing. You know, people download music illegally. But I remember in his playlist, his playlist would go from techno and it was like in the hall of the mountain king techno and then it would go to rap and then it would go to metal and then it would go to harry connick jr which sounds like this type of music here and i'm not kidding that was his playlist and then it would go to another metal song and i'm just like going what you go from harry connick jr to rob zombie and i'm going how does that work i mean he's just like i don't know i like it and he would just sit there and he would listen to it and sure enough i mean and <laughs> I mean, hey, it is what it is. He's a very interesting person. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, um, Ocean's Eleven. Now, as Chris mentioned, this is 2001 version. 
was released on December 7th, 2001, and it grossed $450.7 million at the box office. Good Lord. How much was the budget? Do you know? Uh, no. However, I'll, I'll look that up. the entire cast worked for less than their usual salaries to bring down uh, the cost of the movie. So it seems like their strategy kind of won out in the end because I bet you they got a piece of that. Oh, I'm quite sure of it. Especially uh, George Clooney because I think he was a producer on it. So. He might be. I don't know. I could be wrong. Oh, I'm wrong. Yep. I'm, I am a terrible, terrible, terrible wah, host. Wah, wah. Wah, wah. Yeah, that was bad. Oh, jeez. I still cannot find a budget. Oh, okay. Uh, budget estimated $85 million. Yeah, see. Good Lord. $85 million and the, and the cast still took. And they took a pay cut. <sighs> yeah. Jeez. So, um, there is a scene uh, where Tess is introduced, and you see her walking down this staircase. Brad Pitt ate 40 shrimp for that scene. <laughs> well, that was um, one of the things. Every time you see uh, Brad Pitt's character, Rusty, he's always eating fast food. And in the commentary, he was talking about the reason why. I think it was either his idea or Steven Soderbergh's idea that uh, these guys are always on the go. So, of course, they're going to pick up nasty food on the way because they got to hurry up. They got to get to the next job. They got to do the next thing. And it, in the first scene, you see Rusty. He's sitting there eating, eating nachos, waiting on Topher Grace to show up. Nachos. Delicious. <laughs> Delicious nachos. Which I have some I have some nachos, some jalapeno cheese in there. Good for you. <laughs> I don't like the jalapeno part. Oh, come on. I have a bad stomach, sir. I know. <laughs> so anyway. Uh Luke Wilson and Owen Wilson were to play the brothers Virgil and Turk. But they dropped out at the last minute to film the Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah, which uh, Danny Glover was supposed to be in this movie, but he also dropped out to play uh, in the Royal Tenenbaums as well. There was somebody else that was going to be associated with the film that also went to the... It seemed like that was the big movie at the time. Yeah. Let's talk about this whole scene with the, with the twins, Virgil and uh, Turk Boy. Okay, you see this little RC monster truck pull up and then a really, you know, then a real monster truck pull up on the other side of it, which is Scott Kahn is driving and Casey Affleck is, you know, playing the other one. That was like the best opening to two characters ever. And that is the only scene that you see them actually separate. After that, you see them together as brothers. Well, the thing that kills me is they're sitting there arguing. He's like, go. No, you go. No, you're you're like a girl. You're like a little girl. Go. And then finally he goes. And then because Scott Conn's losing, he runs over the toy car. So, you know, another trivia about that is that the screenwriter, Ted Griffin, he based those arguments that they had off of the arguments he used to have with his brothers. <laughs> and you can see that, too, because, like, the... They seem like really, you know, arguments that, <laughs> that brothers or sisters would really have. I mean, I think that's why it makes those characters likable, because we've all had arguments <laughs> like that with our siblings. And then what's the one scene, like, with Matt Damon, where they're, where they're stealing the pinch later on? And Matt Damon's in the back seat, and he's, he's, like, you know, freaking out. He's like, no, no, don't leave me here with these guys. And they're sitting there arguing. He's like, stop touching me. He's like, I'm not touching you. They're like grown adults, and they're sitting there arguing on who's touching who. I remember my brother and my sister used to argue like that all the time. And I remember one time uh, Amber 
told uh, my mom that my brother was breathing too loud. And I remember my mama looking right at my sister saying, what do you want me to do? Make him stop breathing? That would kill him. And I mean, so, you know, their arguments are very relatable. Well, I mean, me and Jason, we've argued like that. But Jason... Jason likes to pick, uh, he likes to start things just to do it. Like, we would go to the theaters, and I'm sitting there engrossed in the movie and everything else. And also, next thing I know, here comes a handful of popcorn out of nowhere flying at me. And I'm going, I look over, and Jason's just like, What, man? What happened? You all right? You good? Somebody throw something? I was like, Really? You know, what are you, five? And I, I, I'm not talking like he's like, you know, late teens. No, no, no. This is when he's in the late 30s, he's doing this. <laughs> so that's my brother. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, and the laugh that Scott Kahn does, uh, Brad Pitt and Andy Garcia, they were all talking about it on the commentary. They said that you could hear that laugh just like echo throughout everywhere, especially around the ca- uh, the catering section. And, I mean, uh, excuse me, the craft section. Craft, crafty. Yeah, crafty. I should know better. I've worked on sets before. You have. So the last, the last uh, trivia piece that I wrote down was that Johnny Depp was considered for the role of blindness. I'm glad that didn't happen because I like Matt Damon better as Linus. I mean, he he's just, especially in the sequels, he's just so clueless. And he, he is picked on throughout the whole movie. You know, for somebody to be such a good pickpocket, the thing about Linus that I like is he's got this innocence to him. Yeah. It's, and it's a likable innocence. So there's a naivete to his character that makes kind of no sense since he, you know, he steals things. <laughs> Which, you know, most people wouldn't even consider doing in their lifetimes, but yet he does. The one scene that made me laugh was when George Clooney pops up and he's like, oh, you didn't really think I was going to sit this one out. Did you? And he's like, oh, what, you didn't trust me? And they're sitting there and that's when he, Linus realizes, you know, the whole fight and everything that Brad Pitt's character and George Clooney had was all fake. It was just just to mess with Linus. He's like... Oh, come on, man. Why do you got to do that to me? Why don't you just tell me, you know, like a little kid? Yeah. It made me laugh. It makes me laugh every time. This is this is one movie, you sit down, you watch it, you're going to smile from the beginning to end because it's just fun throughout. And that's what Steven Soderbergh wanted. He wanted to make a movie that was fun to watch from beginning to end. And I think he did it. I think he pulled it off very nicely. It was fun. So the first thing I noticed when we started watching the film was that there was no music at the very beginning. And then when the music kind of cut in, it began it began with a beat and a shaker. You could hear the xylophone that was brought in. And it was at the scene in which they showed the casino in New Jersey. Yep. So you could see you could hear the music then. Yeah, and it's a little like it's like very subtle too. It's like mm-hmm. bam, bam, bam. It was pretty cool. I kind of like that. Of course, there's a lot of dialogue in the movie, and so the score is lacking in a lot of places, uh, which I found kind of problematic because there are some places that I felt like I wanted to hear something, uh, a hit or you know a, a score cue or something like that come in, and it's not there. You know. See, I, I don't know. I I kind of think it was kind of placed pretty good in a lot of spots. Can you remember what scenes in particular? The the one in particular that I really wanted to hear something uh, on was the scene in which they were looking at the plans, uh, where they, they went into the uh, plan uh, there room. There was something there, but it just needed to be a little bit more, maybe. Well, that's my problem I had with the score with the movie. Yeah. It made me wanting more. I felt like it was lacking. I love the score by itself, but when you added the score to the movie, I felt like it was lacking in places, and it made me wanting more. 
because it kind of just faded in the background. It didn't stand out. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I can I can kind of see that, uh, except for the ending piece, which I still love the ending. Piece. I mean, it's a great piece. And, and that was one of the things that that worked because it, it had that. I, I still remember that horn line and then Andy Garcia walking, which. They said, uh, Andy Garcia said that they told him uh, his character's supposed to be like a shark. He's always on the move. He's always moving. He's always going after his prey. And that whole ending sequence worked because you got this whole part. The camera's just kind of looming right on his face, and he's just, the way he's walking and everything else, it it, it worked. It, it worked for his character. It worked for the scene. And I think if I remember the trivia correctly, that scene where he's walking out of the the vault and down the hallway, that was filmed a few weeks apart. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah, that was not wow. filmed on the same day. I see. I didn't know that. And you yeah. would never notice it either. No, it's just seamless. There's always one, there, there's this one scene, every time I watch this movie, there's that one scene that um, I, I want to know how they did it. I'm pretty sure it was like some kind of special effect or something, but considering they filmed this in an actual casino, if I'm correct, right? Yeah, the Bellagio. Yeah, they filmed this in the actual Bellagio. I want to know how they did it. Uh, they they got this one scene. It's um, Matt Damon's character first walks up to Andy Garcia, where uh, Matt Damon's playing the uh, the Nevada Gaming Commission guy, and Bernie Mac's in there, and they're like, uh, Matt Damon starts to go off, of, you know, about the reason why he's there, and he's going to arrest Bernie Mac's character, and Andy Garcia's, you know, don't don't you think it'd be better if we speak off the floor? And then as they walk off, the camera zooms in to the elevator, and you see Virgil and Turk coming off the elevator. I want to know how they timed that. I mean, did they have, like, some kind of special effect where they opened the door or something like that? I couldn't find no Maybe trivia. Maybe they filmed it different, and then they, they cut it together. No, no, they couldn't have done so. it. Like, no, they couldn't have done it like that because it was all in one take. Uh, that was one of the things you could definitely tell because there's no cuts. Uh I, I just I want to know how they did it. I mean, I'm pretty sure it's something stupid simple where it was they they had a timer maybe. They they had it. They maybe probably they had, had a, a monitor in the elevator. I think they had a remote, either a monitor in the elevator or a remote where they opened the doors. It's probably something like that. But it, it, it's every, every, I know it's something like that. I, I've worked. It's in like this. Star Trek trivia. You know, anytime you watch go through the doors of the old Star Trek show, and the, the doors would just open. Well, because there's a guy standing behind the wall pulling the lever. Right. <laughs> And I don't think I don't, I don't think that's what it was. I mean, but that's what it's in my head. I just imagine two guys on the other side of the doors just opening them up. I, I know, like I said, I know it was probably like a remote or they had a monitor. Like, and door open now. You know, that's probably what happened. But it, it was every time. And that and one of my favorite scenes is one of mine and Jason's favorite scenes. And we still quote this every day is when Brad Pitt shows up as a doctor and he's got this dumb looking wig on. Fun fact about the Hold wig. It, it, he looks into the camera and like, someone call for a doctor? <laughs> I love that part. Yeah, you love it every time it pops up the screen. Every time that part happens, I just bust out laughing. So the wig he was wearing is actually Mike Myers' wig from Austin Powers, <laughs> International Man of Mystery. That's why it looks so funny on that's him. A, that's a, it's just funny to see Brad Pitt like that. Someone call for a doctor? That and uh, the whole SWAT team thing. Uh, um Blue team, move it out. <laughs> I can tell you really like this movie. I've watched this movie one too many times. I can see. It's it's one of my go-to movies. If it's like I can't find nothing on, it's either... But you always like heist movies. You're a I big really heist do. person. Now, fun fact about this. Uh, it was written by Ted Griffith. 
And originally they wanted Brett Ratner to direct the film, but uh, I don't know what happened. He either turned it down or Soderbergh accepted it, whatever. Now, Brett Ratner worked with Ted Griffin later on with Tower Heist, which was also another one of those fun movies. Is that and the one with... Uh, it's Eddie Murphy, Ben Stiller, and it has Casey Affleck in I there. I haven't watched that one. You haven't? No. Oh, it was fun. It was very, very funny. It was a lot funnier than, you know, it was more of a comedy than like this film here. Is that the one... Is, is Matthew Broderick in that one as well? Yes. Okay. So, yeah, I'm thinking about the same movie. Yeah, and it takes place uh, during Thanksgiving, so we may cover that one on one of our Thanksgiving episodes. Really? Yes. Oh, it, it was a really good score, though, as uh, Christopher Beck did the score for that. Okay. So, yeah, we'll talk I'll about that. I'll take your word for it. it. It's fun. So, you know, I, I felt like uh, the score was too homogenous in places and that it needed more variety. So, um, you know, at the end of the movie, that was my overall feeling, is that, you know, it, it was lacking in places and then it was too homogenous. There wasn't enough variety and then it kind of just faded in the background, which I understand the reasoning behind it because of all the dialogue. So you could follow what was going on because there's a lot of moving parts in the movie, but it still made me wanting more. I, I can, I guess I can kind of see that. I mean, there, there were some moments where it was just like, it needs to be a little bit punched, punched up. up. Yes. Yeah. Right. Uh, but one sequence, I think it really worked was the whole sequence where you first meet Ruben, you know, Elliot, Elliot Gould's character walking up with the bathrobe wide open, big belly hanging out, Terry chest. And I, laugh every time I see it. And it was his idea for his character to smoke a cigar. So the cigar was his his idea. Yeah. Well, and that's uh, the character trait they kept throughout the rest of the series. Yeah, I thought it was fun. Yeah. Um, I know uh, there was another Oceans movie. It was Oceans 8, and that starred uh, Sandra Bullock. Uh, David Holmes sadly did not score that one. It was uh, Daniel Pemberton. I remember that score being not as good as uh, the ones from Ocean's Eleven, Ocean's Twelve, Ocean Thirteen, but I mean the the scores the, the score is fun. I mean on its own and everything else. So I, I guess it's about time to get to our questions. What do you think? I think so. So as always, we always base you know every episode we narrow it down to three questions. Does it work for the film? See, that's a hard one for me. Because in places, I feel like it works. In places, I don't feel like it works. Um, I wasn't too entirely happy with it when, it, we, when we merged it with the film. Uh, I really liked it on its own, though. Yeah. I, I liked it as a score piece. I liked it as music. Um, but I, I didn't really like it in the movie itself because it seemed like too much of the same thing over and over again. There was no variety no building, no tension building, no no resolution sounding up until that last piece. Um, so I'm going to answer no. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> when we were watching the film and you were, you were telling me this and I, I, I kept giving you crap going, oh, no, no, it scores great. Works. There's no problem with it. But, you know, I, 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 for the purposes of this podcast, I have to be honest. Uh, listening to it on its own, it's fun. I, I love the the mixture of the drum and bass with the old sounding nineteen sixties seventies uh, style score. Against the film, there's a lot of moments where it does work, like the 
ones I was just mentioning, the the ending sequence, the sequence with Ruben. Um, but there are a lot of moments where I agree with you. It sounds like it just kind of mixes in the background. Drones on and it, on. It becomes source music and everything else. But I, I got to say this. It, it does stand out. It does work for a lot of scenes. So I'm going to say with a hesitant yes. And the reason why I say it like that is because there are a lot of moments where it could have been better. But overall, I, I would say, yeah, it does work for the film. That's just my opinion. Okay. I'm sorry. I had to disagree with you. That's fine. Okay. We're married. We disagree on lots of things. Okay. Now. <laughs> <laughs> Can't deny it. Yeah, yeah, that is true. That is true. All right, your favorite scene, favorite score piece. So my favorite scene is with uh, Virgil and his brother, and they're trying to deliver the balloons as a, as a, um, you know, uh, uh, oh, what's the word? A um, look over here. The, yeah, distraction. The, distraction. That's it, distraction. <laughs> yeah, where he lets the lets the balloons go onto the camera. Right, and he's just like, I'm just trying to deliver my balloons. And, and then uh, Scott Kahn just started busting out laughing. He's like, ah, balloon boy, balloon. I just, to me, it just it made me laugh because it just reminded me of some of those silly arguments that I've gotten, you know, into with my, my siblings. So, and then they started doing the whole, you know, much where are you going, friend? I'm not your friend, pal. You know, yeah, I, I, I love that whole sequence. Yeah, it was just, to me, that's my favorite part of the movie. And uh, my favorite score piece is the last one. Was it the $160 million? Chinese man. Chinese man. I really love that piece. Um, because it, it had, that one surprisingly had a little bit of variety to it, even though there was kind of jazzy elements mm -hmm. in there, it was, had more variety in it than some of the other pieces, in my opinion. Now, one of the, one of the things about, um, the, the actor that plays the Chinese man, he did not speak any English. He was not an actor and he really did come from a circus. He did. Yep. And after this movie, he did consider uh, becoming a stuntman, but he ended up going back to the circus. And he's one of the one characters who showed up throughout the rest of the series, even in Ocean's 8. Spoilers. Um, <laughs> my favorite scene, there, I don't know, there's so many. Uh, one of them. The doctor. I, I love the part. You know, <laughs> someone call for a doctor. Uh, I love that part, but I got to say, probably one of my more favorite scenes is the part where Bernie Mac is negotiating with the car, uh, the car salesman, and the guy's trying to lowball him. You know, oh, like, he's, oh, he's like, "Oh, I hand. can only take you know so much, you know, for each of those bands." And then he starts squeezing his hand. He's like, "Oh, do you moisturize?" He's like, uh, "I'm, I'm sorry." He's, like, "I've tried all sorts of moisturizers," and he's just going on, and he's still holding, gripping that guy's hand. Then when he let him go, the guy's hand is like blood red. He, he dang near broke that guy's hand, and I was like, "Cool, that's like." That's a, that's pretty you know that's pretty bold that right there, scene, buddy. Though kind of reminded me of used cars for whatever reason. It kind of, it was like a reverse cars. sequence of used cars. Right. You know, in used cars, they probably would have done that to the to the the guy that's buying the car, not the car dealership. You know, the the seller. Yeah, yeah. Uh, favorite score piece though is it, I, I gotta agree with you. It was. Um, uh, 160 million dollar Chinese man, the the ending sequence because it, it's the one that really stands out. Now I did like the theme for Saul, but that wasn't part of the score. That was Quincy Jones. Uh, no, that was it was good though. It was good. It, it worked. It worked for the character. It worked great. 
Um, so the last question, what could have been done different? Uh, now, I think we've kind of talked about that. So, so go um, ahead, Leslie. you know, as I mentioned before, what I think could have been done different is that uh, it could have uh, score could have been punched up in places. Um, they could have added a little bit more variety to it because of uh, the, you know, it, it seems homogenous in places. And I feel like uh, there are particular places in which they needed to add score. So, you know, those few, um, those few points, you know, are, is what I would have done differently. Yeah. Yeah. And I agree, I agree with you. I agree. So yeah, uh, my, my thoughts exactly on that. I mean, there, there's a lot of parts that could have been punched up a little bit. Um, maybe added some sort of a theme, maybe. I don't know if that would have worked for this film, but... No, I don't think a recurring motif would have yeah. worked unless you did one for Tess. I think that would have worked for her character. Kind of... Because... Yeah. It, strange thing about this movie is that, bottom line, it is a love story Yeah. between George Clooney's character and Tess's character. So... You've got this this love story going on there on top of heist. So, uh, you know, there's there's kind of uh, an, uh, undertones of that. And I, I could see where a motif would uh, come into play, you know. For them, for yeah. Them. Yeah. And one of the funny things about the whole thing with Julia Roberts, when um, George Clooney offered her, you know, gave her the script and everything else, he said, uh, I heard you're getting 20 a picture now. And he had a $20 bill in there for her. <laughs> That's because she, at the time that this movie came out, was the highest uh, grossing female actress in Hollywood, and she was getting $20 million of film. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he attached $20. That's pretty funny. And then, like, uh, so it was becoming like her 20 years uh, as an actress, right? Yeah. And then um, as a joke, because they, they picked on her a lot, just messing with her throughout the, the filming. They gave her the on-screen credit of and introducing Julia Roberts. And then in the second one, it's introducing Tess as Julia Roberts. Because spoilers, the one thing I hated about Ocean's 12, they make Tess have this whole thing where she is Julia Roberts. And that that is the one thing that killed that movie for me. I did not like it. I, I hated that they did. I hate when they do stuff. Like when they take stuff meta, I, I can't stand it. It's just one thing. It's like, uh, no, you don't have the actor or actress in there. And anyways. So, yeah. Chris, tell me something that you don't like. I just did. <laughs> <laughs> Let me hear your opinions about what you don't we, like. We don't have enough time for that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that must be a long Oh, list. it is. It, it That one thing. Anyways. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to keep going. I don't want to keep going on this. I am stuttering. Yes. <laughs> So those are our thoughts on the score to Ocean's Eleven. Fun movie, fun score on its own. I could have been on, you know, handled a little bit better, you know, against the film, but it it still works for the most part. Uh, now, guys, uh, we we have a lot of things, great things coming up for the season. Now, one thing I want to talk about before we completely close this out, we have a merchandise store. Yes, we do. I am so excited about that. Tell um, us more, Chris. We have tons of stuff available. We have t-shirts, mugs. Uh, we don't have mouse pads. Do we have totes? We do. We have totes. And pins. We have pins. Uh, like pins that you put on your clothes, not writing pins. But we do have books. Books? Books. <laughs> like journals. <laughs> oh. Uh, we have, no, seriously, we have a ton of apparel available. <laughs> 
tell me more about these books. Yeah. Tell me more. Uh, no, no, no. Seriously, we, we got a ton of great stuff. We got stickers available that you can buy. Um, if you want to purchase any of this stuff, uh, there should be a link in the description below in the episode under the more section, or you can go to our link tree. It's a link tree. Just type in link tree measuring the score on Google. You'll find it. And right at the very top, you'll see merchandise and just click that and you can, you know, go check it out. I think I'm going to get a tote. <laughs> I'm getting a mug. I am definitely getting a mug. Mug yeah. and some stickers. Because in the South, we all need tote. <laughs> to tote stuff. And we need mugs for our coffee. Or in the words of my daddy, I toted it. <laughs> I toted it. <laughs> I toted it in a tote. Alrighty. So, as always, you can find us pretty much anywhere you listen to the podcast, Spotify, Apple, anywhere. And also, uh, guys, leave us a review and rating on Spotify and Apple. We would greatly appreciate it. E- even if it's honest and you don't really like us too much, hey, put it on there. We need to know. We need to know how to improve. Or send us an email. You can contact us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or send us an email at measuringthescore at gmail.com. If you want to find us on Facebook, just type in Measuring the Score Podcast. Same as on Instagram. Twitter, we are at Measure the Score. I'm usually on Twitter. Leslie does Facebook. I don't tweet the tweets. You don't tweet the tweets. I, I tweet. I tweet the tweets. You not tweet you. the tweets. No, I'm you. not the Tweety Bird. <laughs> You're the Tweety Bird. Yeah, you don't tweet. I tweet. That's right. Tweets. <laughs> Do I get some tweets after this? Maybe. All right. <laughs> you got anything else? Not that I can think of. <laughs> All right. For Measuring the Score, I'm Chris. And I'm Leslie. Have a good one.